scripture reading is from Joshua 15, 1 to 12, and verses 20 to 61. Uh, This can be found on page 162 of your Pew Bibles. Joshua 15, 1 to 12. The allotment for the tribe of Judah, clan by clan, extended down to the territory of Edom, to the desert of Zin in the extreme south. Their southern boundary started from the bay at the southern end of the Salt Sea, crossed south of Scorpion Pass, continued on to Zin, and went over to the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it ran past Hetzron up to Adar and curved around Karka. It then passed along to Atzmon and joined the Wadi of Egypt, ending at the sea. This is their southern boundary. The eastern boundary is the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of Jordan. The northern boundary started from the Bay of the Sea at the mouth of the Jordan, went up to Beth Hoglah and continued north of Beth Aravah to the stone of Bohan, son of Reuben. The boundary then went up to Debir from the valley of Akor and turned north to Gogal, which faces the pass of Adumim, south of the gorge. It continued along to the waters of En Shemesh and came out at En Rogel. Then it ran up the valley of Ben Hinnom along the southern slope of the Jebusite city, that is Jerusalem. From there, it climbed to the top of the hill west of the Hinnom Valley at the northern end of the Valley of Rephaim. From the hilltop, the boundary headed toward the spring of the waters of Nephtoah, came out at the towns of Mount Ephron, and went down toward Ba'alah, that is Kiriath Yearim. Then it curved westward from Ba'alah to Mount Seir, ran along the northern slope of Mount Yearim, that is Kesalon, continued down to Beth Shemesh, and crossed to Temnah. It went to the northern slope of Ekron, turned toward Shekaron, passed along to Mount Ba'alah, and reached Yavne'el. The boundary ended at the sea. The western boundary is the coastline of the Great Sea. These are the boundaries around the people of Judah by their clans. Verses 20 to 61. This is the inheritance of the tribe of Judah, clan by clan. The southernmost towns of the tribe of Judah in the Negev, toward the boundary of Edom, were Kavzael, Eder, Yagor, Kina, Demona, Adada, Kadesh, Hatzor, Ithnan, Ziph, Talem, Be'aloth, Hatzor, Hadata, Kirioth, Hetzron, that is Hatzor, Amam, Shema, Molada, Hatzar, Gada, Heshmon, Beth Pelet, Hatzar, Shu'al, Beersheba, Bizyothia, Ba'ala, Ye'im, Etzem, El-Tolad, Kesil, Horma, Ziklad, Madmana, Sansana, Lebaoth, Shiohim, Ain, and Ramon, a total of 29 towns and their villages. In the western foothills, Eshtaol, Zorah, Ashna, Zanoah, and Ganim, Tapua, Enam, Jarmuth, Adulam, Soko, Azekah, Sha'araim, Adithaim, and Gedara, or Gedarothoaim, fourteen towns and their villages. Zanan, Hadasha, Migdagad, Dilean, Mizpah, Yokthael, Lachish, Boskath, Eglon, Kavon, Lachmas, Kitlish, Gedaroth, Beth Dagon, Naama, and Makeda. 
16 towns in their villages. Livna, Ether, Ashan, Ifta, Ashna, Neziv, Kela, Akzib, and Maresha. Nine towns in their villages. Ekron, with its surrounding settlements and villages, west of Ekron, all that were in the vicinity of Ashdod, together with their villages, Ashdod, its surrounding settlements and villages, and Gaza, its settlements and villages, as far as the Wadi of Egypt and the coastline of the Great Sea. In the hill country, Shamir, Yatir, Soko, Dana, Kiryath Sana, that is, Devir, Anav, Estermo, Anim, Goshen, Holon, and Gilo, eleven towns in their villages. Arav, Duma, Eshan, Yanim, Beth Tapua, Afeka, Humta, Kiryat Arva, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine towns in their villages. Ma'on, Carmel, Zif, Utah, Yezreel, Yokdeam, Zanoah, Cain, Gibeah, and Timnah, ten towns in their villages. Hahul, Bethzor, Gedor, Ma'arath, Beth Anoth, and El Takon, six towns in their villages. Kiriath Ba'al, that is Kiriath Ya'arim, and Rabbah, two towns in their villages. In the desert, Beth Arava, Medin, Sekaka, Nifshan, the city of salt, and Engedi, six towns in their villages. This is the word of God. I think he got one of those towns wrong. <laughs> uh, many of you know that Jeff is a seminarian, which, which means uh, two things, you know. He's going to spend his whole lifetime reading scripture in public, and, and I suppose he will never have a harder passage to read again. The other thing it means is when I assign him a passage like this, he can't say no because he's a seminarian in training, you know. But I promise you, if I assign you a passage, it won't be like this. Now, there, there is a point to it, other than just pranking Jeff. Uh, <laughs> well, in the whole congregation. There is a point to it. Because there's eight chapters of this stuff. Back to back in the book of Joshua. And you've got to wonder, what's the point? What's going on? You know, the content could not possibly be clearer. This town, that town, that town, that town, a whole list of towns. Now, but how is that spiritually useful to us? Now, any of you who own homes or condos, it really matters, it's crucial to you that you have a deed. It's the only way you know, anyone else knows you own that thing. You've got to have a deed. To sell it, you've got to have a deed. It's important to me that I have a deed to my house. But I would never go down to the Registry of Deeds for Middlesex County, I think it's in Cambridge, and just start reading off all the deeds that are in the files down there. So why does Scripture give us a con eight chapters of deeds? Now, this is the worst section. But eight chapters of deeds. Why? We're going to get into it. But first, let me tell you where we are. Again, we have this, you know, I keep trying to use this thing because it costs like, a, I don't know, $75 or some fool thing, but it works intermittently. So let's see if I can do that. Okay. 
Look, I want to bring you to where we are. Particularly for those of you who haven't been here before, this is going to go fast. If you've been here repeatedly, then you should be able to pick it up. I always want to locate. What we're doing is we're preaching through the whole of the Bible. The big idea, there's actually one idea that goes all the way from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation, the end of Revelation. One idea, Revelation 22. And we want to figure out, how does that idea develop as we go through it? Where are we? So that any time we start a new text like this one, where are we? What's God trying to tell us through this text? How does it fit in with what God's doing through all of time? Beginning of time to the end of time. Through all the world. From Palestine, Canaan, to the rest of the world. So the story begins with what we would call Eden, if we have a Christian background, what you could call uh, utopia. The story begins with utopia. And then Eden is lost. Man does something stupid, which not only brings punishment to him, but he corrupts the world around us. So that nothing is ever right again. We're, we're sinful people in a broken world. And then the rest of the story is about God fixing the world. The rest of the story, thank you, Vivian. Okay. And the whole rest of the story is about God restoring his world. And it starts in three pieces. First, God... It speaks to Abraham and offers him three promises. And the first are just for him and his descendants. The first is that he'll have a lot of kids. The world will be populated. And the second is that they'll have land. And Genesis, we see the fulfillment of the promise of descendants. The first book of the Bible. And then the next five books of the Bible are all about them getting this land. And the third promise is that this is not just for Israel. It's really for the whole world. And eventually, the gospel, the promises of God will even go to Northern Europe. And the promises of God will even go to China. And the promises of God will even go to the Muslim world. And this is what the whole Bible story is about. And where we are right now in Joshua, you see, is we're looking at the land promise. God has promised this, people, this group of people, this nation, that he'll give them a homeland. And so first, the first step of giving them land is the... You know, they're in captivity. They're slaves. They're, 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 they're undocumented immigrants in somebody else's country. You know, they have their own homeland in Genesis. And then there's famine, so they have to go to Egypt. And they're living in Egypt, and, and they're dominated as a, uh, undocumented immigrants. They're dominated by the Egyptians. Finally, they're enslaved. They're forced labor. And the first thing God does is in Exodus, he brings them out of the land. And after that, then... In Numbers, he invites them to enter Canaan. And they're afraid to. They refuse. They say, we can't go there. You're going to kill us. We're going to, they're going to kill us, and you're not going to stop it. So God says, okay. You don't want to go. You don't go. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And now in the beginning of Joshua, Joshua invites them now to re-enter the land. And this is where the story picks up. There's been two parts, and you know, apart from the introduction and the conclusion, there's really two parts. Uh, first, they conquer the land. In the first half of Joshua, they're conquering the land. And we looked at that last week. God's promise that he would be with them and empower them to conquer the land. And now this week, they're distributing the land. And that's why, uh, you know, Jeff read the longest passage. Chapter 15 is about the piece of land that one of the tribes gets. There's 12 tribes in all. Nine and a half are going to get land in this in this area. 
Jeff read the toughest one, the longest one. It's about the first tribe getting their land. The tribe of Judah. But eight chapters, nine chapters, ten chapters, I don't know, 14, 21 minus 14, however many chapters that is, is all about the distribution of the land. And the question is, what's God telling us through all of this? A little help, Vivian? So we've got, at the beginning of this chapter 14, we've got land for the nine and a half tribes. At the end, we've got land for the people without land. And in between, all we have is eight continuous tribes. Land for Judah. Land for Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Land for Benjamin. Land for Simeon. Land for Zebulun. Land for Issachar. Land for Asher. Land for Naphtali. Land for Dan. And all the clans and the tribes of Israel get their land over the course of eight chapters or so. And finally, land for the landless. Now, what's the point to all of this? You know, you could read eight chapters pretty much. They move at a faster pace, but pretty much like Jeff read. What's the point of it all? Now, let's talk about it. We always look at first, what did God say to them and what difference does it make to us? What did God say to them? At the beginning of this distribution of land and at the end, he makes the same basic point. Listen to it as I read to you. First of all, I'll read from Joshua chapter 14. And he tells them what the point is just before he gives them the land. This is like, a, like you were taught to write essays in the ninth grade, right? First you tell them what you're going to tell them in your thesis sentence. Then you tell them, and then in the end you tell them what you told them. So here we have the introduction to this whole litany. Joshua 14. Here's what God says. Now these are the areas the Israelites received as an inheritance in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel allotted to them. Their inheritances were assigned by lot to the nine and a half tribes, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. So God commands Joshua, Eleazar, and all the clan chiefs to get together and choose lots. For who gets what piece of land? And so, in verse 5, the Israelites divided the land, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So we have these eight chapters because God commanded, twice it says here, the Lord commanded Moses, distribute this land. The Lord commanded Moses, distribute this land. And then in chapter 21, verses 43 to 45, so the Lord gave Israel all the land. Now note this. The Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. And they took possession of the land. And they settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side. Note this. Just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Surely, every promise was fulfilled. At the beginning, he tells you the point. At the end, he tells you the point. What's the point? God swore he would give these people land. And he gave them land. Not one of God's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. 
Let's think about what that means for a moment before we go on. The Lord promised Israel land, and he gave them land. How long did it take God to fulfill that promise? Anybody want to hazard a guess? How long were they in Egypt? That one's we know. How long were they in Egypt? 400 years. And there was several generations before Egypt and another generation after. It took God about 600 years to fulfill this promise. He promised them descendants, then he promised them land, and he promised them bless the nations. This is the land promise. At the end of Joshua, Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 to 45, the land promise is fulfilled. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. It took 600 years. There were people who raised families and looked for the promises of God and didn't see them. There were people who saw... Families die, their parents die, their children die, their siblings die. For 600 years they waited, life and death. Uh, captivity, slavery, freedom, wandering in the wilderness, famine, punishment from God. 600 years they waited. Why do we need eight chapters? Or why they needed it? At the very least they needed eight chapters. Because they had waited 600 years. 600 years when, if anything, they saw a little bit of incremental improvement. 600 years when some of, them, some of them didn't see that. All they saw was generations of slavery. 600 years they waited. And God looked unfaithful. As they looked around them, they could see, yeah, one promise... God gave them all these descendants. There was a great horde of them. There were so many, the Egyptians were worried about having them in the country because they could revolt, create chaos. He, God fulfilled, but, but God promised them land. And they didn't have land. They were slaves. They were illegal immigrants, if you will, in, in somebody else's country. And the Bible told them that God is faithful to his promises. And they look around and they say, I can't see my land. I can't see God's faithfulness. And so when the land finally, the promise is fulfilled and they finally have the land, God wrote it down. Eight chapters worth. And every time they read one of these statements, they can say, God is faithful. It takes a while, but God is faithful. And anyone who descended from the clan of Judah would then read this passage of Scripture. And you ask anyone from the tribe of Judah, is God faithful? And they can give you the whole list. They give you the list of the outer boundaries and they give you the list of the cities inside. You ask anyone from the tribe of Joseph, is God faithful? And he can tell you the outer boundaries. And he can tell you the inner cities. You ask anyone from the tribe of Benjamin, is God faithful? And he can give you the outer boundaries. And he can give you the inner cities. And you ask anyone from the tribe of Simeon, the clan of Zebulun, the tribe of Issachar, of Asher, of Naphtali, Dan, is God faithful? And Joshua gives them the outer boundaries. And he gives them the list of cities inside. And every one of these hundreds of names says, God keeps 
his promises. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Now, what does that say to us? Yesterday, I, a lot of you will know because it's, there's an NPR TV show called Car Talk. Now, a couple of guys who graduated from MIT and then opened up a garage eventually in Cambridge. So maybe you've heard of an NPR. If you haven't heard it, now one of them just died this last year, 2014. Really a, a national outpouring of grief over these guys. This is a show about cars, a radio show on NPR. But it's not really about cars. It's about life and fun. I mean, this, the first time I came across this show, by accident, I don't normally listen to NPR. I'm, I'm too hip for that. Um, I was in Chicago about 1998. I'm driving home. This show is on. This radio show is on. And it's just hysterical. It was so funny. For the first time in my life, I got home, parked my car, and sat in the car until the radio show was over. Because I didn't know where, to, where it was or how to find it. So I just randomly, while I was cooking something yesterday, I happened to be listening to NPR. Now, these guys not only give car advice, they kind of interact with the, with the people who call in with questions. They interact with them. Sometimes they bust their chops. So yesterday, I'm listening to a, the, the, the guy who called in. said, oh, well, he says, I graduated from the same school you did, so they had this kind of bond. Turned out to be a physicist. And his field of vocation, his occupation, he's a physicist at Princeton University working on nuclear fusion. I think I got that one right. So they start busting his chops about nuclear fusion. And they, they, they asked him, he says, you know, how long is it going to be before we actually can do this? And, and they said, well, probably another 30 or 40 years. And they started, the two of them, the two brothers, started bantering back and forth. What would it be like to spend your entire career on a project knowing that for the rest of your life, your working career, you are going to fail. The whole time, you're going to fail. If anyone succeeds, it's going to be after you've retired. And they're back and forth about this. You see, 600 years. They didn't know it was going to be 600 years. It took 600 years. 40 years, maybe, nuclear fusion. But let me talk to you about how it matters to us. Concretely. You know, we, realized, we recently sent somebody from this congregation, a couple, to Taiwan to serve among the working class while they pursue their vocations. To serve among the working class. One of the things, Richard was the, Richard and Rachel, one of the things Richard mentioned to me was that they first got interested in working among the working class in Taiwan. Well, she's, Rachel's from working class in Taiwan, but they got interested in it because he went to a field conference. And at the field conference, they honored missionaries who'd served their entire career among the working class in Taiwan. And saw next to no fruit from all their efforts. And all the people could do at the end when they're celebrating their ministries in the working class in Taiwan, all they could do at this conference where all the missionaries gathered together was honor them for their service. They couldn't celebrate the results. Just honor them for the service. We have a couple of different couples that we've sent to work among the minorities in China. And I was talking to one of them and said, well, what have you learned, I'm sorry, among the minorities in East Asia? 
And I, I, excuse me, I don't normally make that mistake. And it matters. But anyway, hmm. uh, I asked one of them, what's one of the things you've learned? And her reply was, well, I, I, I went over hoping to accomplish something. And the first five years, I was really, really frustrated because I wasn't accomplishing anything. And after the end of five years, once I got resolved to the fact that maybe I would never accomplish anything in my whole career, then it got easier for me to be there. This is not a defeatist attitude. This is how God's promises are fulfilled. It can take 600 years. Not all of us, but many of us are Chinese, so maybe some of you know this. How long did it take the gospel to penetrate China from the time that missionaries went? Now, modern missionary movement. Let's not go back to the Nestorians in the 7th century. Let's talk about modern missionary movement. How, give me a rough estimate how long you think it took for the gospel to penetrate China. And there's a couple of right answers. Anyone from a Catholic background, how long did it take for the gospel to penetrate China? Yeah, Matteo Ricci started about 500 years ago. And it really, if you say that things really started spreading, they had initially about 125 years, within their first 125 years before they got kicked out and went on the ground, they had some success. But let's say it really started picking up after the Cultural Revolution in 1950. So about 350 years or more for the Catholics. How about for the Protestants? Somebody else. How long did it take for the gospel to succeed in China? How long did it take for us to be possible as a church? When did the gospel, when did the Protestants bring the gospel to China? Anybody know? Yeah, early 1800s. And so you say the God from the early 1800s until the, like when the mid 1900s. So about 150 years. Now think about this. We've just sent some people to work among the working class in Taiwan. We've just sent some people to work among minorities in East Asia. It's the question that the car talk guys were asking on that show. What would it be like to start your career knowing that by the end of your career, you may never see significant results? Is God faithful? Eight chapters of Joshua tells you that God is faithful. He may not move as fast as we want him to move, but he does move. The gospel will succeed. You know, the Muslim world, the Hindu world, quite resistant still to the gospel. Is God faithful to his promises? We're in the third stage of God's promises. God promised land. God promised before that, he did promise descendants. He fulfilled this promise of descendants in Genesis. He fulfills his promise of land in Joshua. It takes probably, oh, the whole thing, probably about a thousand years to fulfill the two, first two promises. If we give our lives to the work of God, will our lives be effective? We don't, will we have results from our lives and our careers? We don't have that promise. But we do know that we are part 
of God's faithfulness to his promises. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. All my fears, all my dreams held in your hands. That's the message, the core message, the central message of Joshua. As a couple of others I want to point out in passing, I'm trying to put devotionals back online and the web addresses in your bulletin. There's a lot of details we can look at in Joshua in these chapters, and I'll put some of those in the devotionals as I can find time to write them. But I want to comment on at least one more point. I probably won't get to the third one. There's a second point that we can pick up specifically. Well, God fulfilled the promise of land. And why does this matter so much? Think of the position that Israel was in when they went to Egypt. Slaves, eh? And then they leave Egypt, and now they're invading Canaan. Again, they're undocumented immigrants. What happens to undocumented immigrants? When they come into a new... What's going to happen? What's in the natural course of action when Israel invades Canaan? What's the natural course of action? The same thing's going to happen to them in Canaan that happened to them in Egypt, if God doesn't intervene. In Egypt, they were made slaves, indentured servants. And what, what's going to happen to them in Canaan? They're going to be made slaves, indentured servants. They're going to be migrant laborers all their lives, generation after generation. So the big idea of Joshua is that God is faithful to his promises. But here's a smaller idea. Here's a smaller idea. That God cares about land. And he gave them boundaries and he gave them cities. Because God cares about land. And why does that matter? Because maybe this God still cares about land. And maybe this God still cares about people who don't have land. Maybe this God still cares about migrant laborers. Maybe this God cares, and maybe we should care. Alan Watt is a uh, a researcher who wrote a book on the labor movement in the 1960s in America. And they, I can remember being a kid in America and having a, hearing that there was a boycott of grapes from California. Don't buy grapes from California. Don't buy lettuce from California. There was a boycott here in New England. Uh, was, people were promoting a boycott. And we thought, what are these communists up to now, you know? Don't buy grapes, don't buy... Well, what's this all about? Well, there was a, a, a farm, uh, there was a movement among farm laborers in the 1960s. And Alan Watts studied it, and he studied two versions of the movement. There was one movement in California, grape harvest, lettuce, and there was another movement in Texas, uh, boycotting some other product, melons, boycotting melons grown in Texas. Alan Watts did a study of this, and here's what he found. He said the movement succeeded in California, and the movement struggled, failed, petered out in Texas. And here's one of the reasons, a key factor. In California, the movement had the support of Catholics and liberal Protestants. And in Texas, the movement had the opposition of churches like ours, conservative Protestants. 
Do you know that in the uh, era of the Underground Railroad, in the era of, of emancipation, in the 1800s, it was evangelicals, pastors and churches and church members, that were a big part of the Underground Railroad in the 1800s. And it was the evangelical churches like ours that were silent during the civil rights era of the 1900s, which we just kind of celebrated in January. God cares about the gospel. And God cares about people. And for some reason, about the 1920s, these two split, and liberal Protestants started caring more about people and less about the gospel. And evangelicals like us were so concerned about the gospel, saving that we didn't want to be like them, so we kind of focused on the gospel and forgot about the people. God fulfills his promises. But the second thing we learn from this passage, too, is that God still cares about migrant laborers. In America today, why do we get fresh fruits and vegetables at a cheap price? Because we have migrant, undocumented immigrants. Bringing them in as farm workers is a multi-billion dollar business. Deporting them is a multi-billion dollar business. Farm workers have the lowest annual family incomes of any occupation in America. Farm workers are exposed to toxic pesticides. Sometimes they're kept in slavery, virtual slavery, the substandard housing. Children as young as 12 work the fields. Children from migrant families have the lowest rate of graduation from high school. Farm workers who are female often suffer the effects of pesticide on the unborn generation. Most farm workers don't have the minimum of things like workman's comp, health insurance, disability insurance. It's hour to hour, day to day, if you get paid. Joshua says, God will not let his people, God did not let Israel become migrant workers. Joshua implies that maybe we should give some thought to this. Now, I don't know what the concrete action item can be, because this is a whole wide open field. Oh, here's one concrete action item. You know immigration reform is going to be a political issue. And whatever party you're part of, well, if you're a Republican, you know the Republicans have to come to terms with this. Because there's going to be, soon there's going to be so many Hispanics in this country, they'll never win another national election if they don't have some immigration reform. So they've been fighting this for a long time. If you're a Republican, I'm not saying you should be a, a, a Democrat. If you're a Republican, talk to your senator or your congressman. Bite them. We want to win an election. Figure this out. Oh, how about this? We talked about, you know, using your vocation for God. I mean, maybe some of you are econ students at one of these local schools. How about doing some kind of research project so you can inform the rest of us what usefully can we do as a church or as individuals? Where should we shop? What should we buy? How can we help this so that agribusiness can't treat people the way we wouldn't treat them personally? That we don't profit from their misery. Now, there's a third point that I was going to draw from this, but we're out of time. But check the devotionals. But at least let's walk away with these two things. God is faithful to his promises. It may not happen in your lifetime, but God will be faithful to his promises of the gospel. We are working in a field 
we are engaged in an endeavor which will succeed in the mercies of God and the power of God. And in the meantime, God gave his people land. Let's think at least a little bit about people who come here and have no land and try and figure out what can we do to help. Let's pray together. Father, we celebrate your faithfulness to us. But we ask you, Father, to work in our hearts that we might not forget our need to be faithful to your other people who don't have as many privileges and rights as we have. We ask for your grace to be on us and your spirit to move in us. In Jesus' name, amen.